This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 104, entitled, The Trial of the Son of Man in Mark. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. As I mentioned, this is episode 104, which is actually the two-year anniversary of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast coming out. Yes, we have been out every single week for two entire years. I appreciate those of you that have listened to and supported the podcast for the last two years, and we're looking forward to many years in the future. As we have been discussing for the last several episodes of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the Gospel of Mark regularly portrays Jesus using Son of Man as his favorite self-reference. In doing so, Jesus regards himself as a human being acting as an authorized agent of the true God. Moreover, the Son of Man functions as the human representative of the people of God. For Mark, the opponents of Jesus regarded Jesus' claims to be the Son of Man authorized by God to be controversial. And the final Son of Man saying in Mark is in a deeply controversial story, which is the trial of Jesus with the high priest. What did the high priest assume that Jesus was trying to do with his self-understanding and with his actions in the temple just a few days prior? What sort of Christological answer will Jesus, the anointed Messiah, offer up to the high priest, who is another anointed person? Will the charge of blasphemy be due to Jesus claiming to be divine, perhaps claiming to be God in the flesh? Or does Jesus maintain in his trial that he is and will remain to be a human being who has received rightful privileges, prerogatives, and authority from the true God? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the trial of the Son of Man and his identity. I'm going to read a passage out of Mark chapter 14, and I'm going to start in verse 55. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up 
and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Mark chapter 14, verses 55 through 64. It is not a coincidence that Mark begins and ends his portrayals of Jesus speaking as the Son of Man with conflict stories. If you recall, the first Son of Man saying regarded Jesus healing the paralytic and claiming that the Son of Man has authority from God to forgive sins. It was this claim to authority that was controversial in the story, just as we see in our current story. Can a human being forgive sins and pronounce judgment over the house of God, the Jerusalem temple? From the perspective of Mark, the answer is yes. A human being can indeed possess such authority if God truly shares those privileges and prerogatives with a special human agent. It is also important to note that Jesus claims to possess his authority as the Son of Man, that is, as a human being. He does not claim to be able to forgive sins and to have the authority to cast judgment on the temple because he is God. Rather, he performs these actions as an authorized human being, as a man. It is important that we note that the beginning of the trial deals with the accusation that Jesus claimed that he will destroy the temple and raise it back up. While the accusers are unable to provide consistent testimony from multiple witnesses, readers of Mark know that Jesus did pronounce judgment over the temple in Mark chapter 11. Readers also know that Jesus predicted the temple's destruction in Mark chapter 13. It seems likely that Jesus didn't answer their accusations because, although the testimony as a whole was false, there was some truth to what they were saying. The crucial point that we need to realize is that the high priest rightly moves the questioning from whether Jesus actually said these things about the temple to whether Jesus considered himself to be, quote, the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, end quote. The logic of person with authority over the temple equals the anointed Son of God was clear to the high priest, and it needs to be clear to readers of Mark as well. So here's the logic of 
understanding how the person with authority over the temple is the anointed Messiah, the Son of God. In 2 Samuel 7, the prophet Nathan tells King David that his descendants will be known by the title Son of God. Specifically, 2 Samuel 7.14 says, from the perspective of God, that I will be his father and he will be my son. Thus, Son of God becomes a title for the Israelite king. In the previous verse, 2 Samuel 7.13, it says that the descendant of David will build a house for my name. So the Son of God will be the temple builder and the one who has authority over the temple. As we know, David's immediate royal descendant was Solomon, who built the first temple. This line of thinking of connecting the authority over the temple to the anointed royal Son of God can be traced in Jewish history at some key points. Within the time of the Maccabean Revolt, when Judas Maccabeus cleansed the temple in the year 164 BC, many Jews thought that it was appropriate to make him king, presumably from the logic of 2 Samuel 7. They thought that, well, Judas cleansed the temple, he has authority over the temple, let's make him king. Later, when Herod the Great was made king of the Jews by the Romans, he considered that he possessed authority to renovate and beautify the temple. So we have some key figures in Jewish history that were regarded as the king in some sense, and they also were regarded as someone with possession of authority over the Jewish temple. So when Jesus acted with God-given authority over the temple, it would have been regarded, reasonably by the high priest, that he was making a claim at being the Messiah, the anointed Son of God. Luckily for us, Mark has let us in on the secret that Jesus is the Son of God from the opening verse of the Gospel, Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. So the realization of the high priest is not a surprise to Mark's readers. I also want to call attention to the fact that the high priest's question regards whether Jesus is claiming a role of someone who is not actually God. The high priest asks if Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. In fact, the High priest doesn't even use the name of God. He uses a circumlocution in place of God, calling him the Blessed One. Jesus answers the question with the simple, I am he, claiming to be the one anointed by the Blessed One, the Son of the Blessed One. Jesus accepts the title of one who is Son of and anointed by the Blessed One. This is not a claim to divinity or a claim to being God. This is a claim to being a special agent of that one true God.
while agreeing with the high priest's question, Jesus also agrees to be the one bearing the authority over the temple. And we need to take a step back and examine the nature of the temple controversy and the question of authority. And that moves us to our second point. Our second point today is the authority of the Son of Man in regard to the temple. I'm going to read a passage out of Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. Having cleansed the temple with a whip, driving out the money changers, the chief priest and other concerned persons desire to know who Jesus thinks he is. Specifically, they want to know by what authority Jesus is able to claim over the temple and from whom did Jesus get this authority. This is a conflict story involving the authority of Jesus, which has been an issue since the beginning of the Gospel of Mark when Jesus claimed authority from God to forgive sins as the Son of Man, as a human being bearing God's authority. Of course, the incident in the temple looks forward to the trial of Jesus where, again, the question of authority comes up and the answer is that Jesus is the authorized Son of Man, a human being bearing the authority that was given to him from God. Mark's readers already know the answer to the question that the high priest and their company are asking. It is important to note that Jesus, in his role as the anointed Son of God, possesses authority over the temple. That's the logic that we receive from 2 Samuel 7. The act of cleansing the temple is an action that claims to anyone familiar with Jewish messianism of the first century that Jesus is the King of the Jews, the Messiah. Jesus offers here a small riddle to his opponents, asking about the authority that John the Baptist had in regard to his baptism. Was the authority to baptize from heaven, meaning from God, or was it derived from the people? If you recall, 
John baptized Jesus, and the voice from heaven acknowledged at the baptism that Jesus was the anointed Son of God, the Jewish King, the Messiah. So the logic behind Jesus asking whether John's baptism was from heaven, meaning authorized by God, naturally points to the event that coronated Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And as the Messiah, Jesus would possess authority over the temple. So when Jesus asked this of his opponents, if they were to answer truthfully, they would conclude that Jesus is the Messiah who possesses authority over the temple and thereby Jesus can cast judgment on the temple rightfully. The opponents of Jesus, on the other hand, consider all of the possible responses that they could give and they realize that they are stuck, ultimately choosing to respond by saying they do not know where John's authority has come from. From Mark's perspective, the following story in the narrative is that of Jesus telling the parable of the wicked tenants, where God sends multiple messengers only to be rejected by the people. God also sends his son, but the son is rejected as well. This parable further indicates that the authority of John and Jesus has authentically come from God in heaven. As a reminder, Jesus is not claiming that he has his authority innately because perhaps he is Yahweh, the one true God. Jesus is claiming rather that the true God has shared his unique authority with Jesus as a human being. In other words, Jesus is a man authorized by the true God, and Jesus is not claiming that his authority is derived from himself. Now that we have a good grasp of the temple authority controversy and how Jesus' actions in the temple were a messianic claim, we can return to the trial and look closely at the accusation of blasphemy. Let's move us to our third point. Point number three today is the nature of the blasphemy charge against Jesus. I want to recall an important section in our passage of Mark chapter 14, and so I'm going to reread starting in verse 61. Again, the high priest was questioning him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 64. At this point, the messianic secret is finally revealed to Israel. The disciples knew that Jesus, the authorized human being, was the anointed Son of God, just as Mark's readers were let in on the secret from the beginning. But now, 
it is climactically revealed to the high priest and the Jewish council. In fact, the question, quote, are you the Christ, is identical Greek to the confession of Peter that he made back in Mark chapter 8 and verse 29, where he stated to Jesus, you are the Christ. Jesus responds to this question from the high priest with a simple I am, which is an ordinary affirmation to basic questions. It would be mistaken, and I cannot emphasize this enough, to read into this answer a claim to being the I am that defines God in several Old Testament passages. Jesus is merely giving an affirmation to the question that was asked of him. Adela Collins, and her commentary on Mark in the Hermeneus series, argues that the statement, Ego in me, translated I am, here is not a claim to divinity, but an affirmation that I am the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed. Collins says that on page 704. Jesus continues by offering a combined quote of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 and Psalm 110 and verse 1. In doing so, Jesus further emphasizes that he bears authority that is derived from God, whom Jesus calls out of respect the power. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, of course, marks Jesus out as the authorized human being. As the Son of Man, Jesus does not claim to be Yahweh. In fact, he carefully uses a respectful circumlocution for God, calling God the power. This is certainly not Jesus infringing upon God's uniqueness. It is also interesting to note that Jesus foresees his resurrected and exalted state to be that of a glorified human being not an exaltation to divinity. Jesus says that the Son of Man will be seated at God's right hand. That is, a human being will be resurrected and exalted to heaven. The exaltation of Jesus is an exaltation while maintaining his identity as a human being. It is not an exaltation to divinity. Psalm 110 verse 1 indicates that Yahweh says to someone else, clearly here being Jesus, that he is exalted in authority to sit at God's right hand. Both Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and Psalm 110 verse 1 indicate that Jesus is authorized by God and that Jesus is someone distinct from God whom Jesus doesn't even openly name, out of respect. Those who are judging Jesus will later be judged by Jesus. This is a radical reversal. In fact, that reference to the vision of Daniel chapter 7 recalls the image of the terrible, ungodly beast harassing the people of God. The people of God who are represented by the human one like a son of man. 
in the trial, it is the high priest and his company within the Jewish council who are harassing the human one like a son of man. Jesus says to the Jewish council, including the high priest, that they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, thus visibly witnessing his vindicated state. That is, Jesus will be vindicated over the persons that are trying him in this trial. In regard to the charge of blasphemy, I think that two things are at play. First, Jesus is claiming to be so authorized that he will eventually be set alongside God in heaven, enthroned at God's right hand, which, if untrue, would surely be seen as an infringement on God's unique position. Second, to infer that Jesus is the Son of Man being judged by the Jewish council would evoke that imagery from Daniel chapter 7, where the beasts harass the people of God, who are represented by the Son of Man. To insinuate that the council, including the anointed high priest, were likened unto beasts of the pagan nations in Daniel 7, would clearly be blasphemous, if not just plain insulting. The irony for the readers of Mark is that the accusation of blasphemy is actually the truth. Jesus really is the authorized Son of Man who is currently sitting at the right hand of God, having been vindicated and resurrected after rejection. So, in conclusion, we have observed that our earliest gospel, the Gospel of Mark, regularly depicts Jesus using his favorite self-reference, which is the Son of Man. This Son of Man is an authorized human being acting as an agent of the true God. Within Mark's Gospel, depicting Jesus as an empowered and authorized human being was controversial, and Mark organizes his narrative by placing conflict stories regarding the authority of this human being as the first and last Son of Man saying. The concluding Son of Man saying comes at Jesus' trial with the high priest and the Jewish council. We noted that Jesus' temple actions led to questioning from the high priest as to whether Jesus considered himself to be the Messiah the Son of the Blessed One. Jesus answers truthfully on this matter, reminding readers of Mark of what Peter had already confessed. Jesus is the Christ. However, the Messiah in Mark is not just a royal anointed figure, but also a figure that is destined to suffer, to die, and be vindicated from the dead by the true God. And Jesus further clarifies his open acceptance of the messianic vocation. In doing so, we observe that Jesus combines two texts, Psalm 110 verse 1 and Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, 
in order to demonstrate that he is indeed a man who has been the recipient of God's authority. By citing Psalm 110 and verse 1, Jesus informs the high priest that he is to be vindicated and exalted up to heaven to sit at God's side. In describing this exalted state, Jesus is careful to distinguish himself from God, to whom he refers with the special circumlocution, the power. As the one vindicated and seated at God's right hand, Jesus recalls Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, and regards himself, again, as the Son of Man, the human being. So Jesus' description of his exalted state nevertheless regards a human being bearing an immense amount of authority and privilege. We also noted that the high priest's sentencing of Jesus to be put to death for blasphemy was likely for two reasons. First, Jesus claimed to be the anointed Messiah who was to be seated at God's right hand. A massive claim to authority from God that the high priest assumed to be false. Second, Jesus' reference to himself as the Son of Man likely recalled the vision of Daniel chapter 7, where pagan Gentile nations are depicted as ungodly beasts harassing the people of God, who are represented by the Son of Man. In the trial, Jesus is being surrounded and harassed by the high priest and the Jewish council. To claim that Jesus would be vindicated from these persons and that they would see the Son of Man coming on the clouds is to characterize Jesus' opponents like the pagan beast of Daniel chapter 7, over whom he will be vindicated and return to judge in a radical reversal. It is for these two reasons, I argue, that Jesus is charged with blasphemy. Within the trial, Jesus never comes close to claiming to be God. Jesus' two citations distinguish Jesus from God, and they portray Jesus as the bearer of a derived authority. Jesus describes himself as the human agent of God, the Son of Man. And Jesus even is respectful of God by referring to God as the power, rather than to use the name of God. There is no claim to divinity at Jesus' trial. Rather, Jesus tells the high priest that he will be raised to the number two position in the universe as a member of the human race. This is, without question, best described as a high human Christology, rather than a Trinitarian or angelic Christology. Join us next week as we look into the Gospel of Matthew to see what additional Son of Man sayings his Gospel has for us to consider. Please consider supporting the Biblical Unitarian Podcast as it aims to promote these sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. 
you may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the podcast. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.